I'm inspired by hearing stories like yours, where you have had everything that sort of people project on you that you should have a good career, money, success in that sense. But then you sort of leave that because you're not satisfied and you take yourself seriously to that extent that you can break away. And you do that because you want to lead a meaningful life. Life. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome Carl Abrahamson to talk about his latest book, Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. Carl Abrahamson is a writer, publisher, magico anthropologist, filmmaker, and photographer. Since the mid-1980s, he has been active in the international magical community, integrating a culture as a way of life and lecturing about his findings and speculations. He is the author of numerous books on art and the occult, as well as the editor and publisher of the annual anthology of a culture, The Fenris Wolf. He lives in Småland, Sweden. You can learn more about Carl's work at his website, carlabrahamson.com. Before we get to our conversation, I want to take a moment and remind you that this podcast is made possible only through the support of my Patreon members and YouTube subscribers. In the past six months, less than 1% of listeners have made a contribution to the ongoing production of this podcast. Without the support of listeners like you, yes, you, I wouldn't be able to bring you the kind of intimate and engaging conversations like the one you're about to listen to. So a great big heartfelt thank you to those of you who are members of the Medicine Path Patreon community and School of Soul Studies, and those of you who have subscribed to the YouTube channel. I really, really appreciate your support. And if you appreciate this podcast and are able to make a contribution, you can find links in the description below to the Patreon site and YouTube channel, as well as a PayPal link for one-time donations. And if you can't afford to make a financial contribution, please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using. And consider sharing this or past episodes with a friend or your social media network. Every little bit helps. If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can find out more about my coaching and mentoring offerings at medicinepath.me. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Carl Abrahamson on The Medicine Path. here with Carl Abrahamson. Carl, it's really nice to meet you and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much. It's nice nice to be here. I wonder if you could just start by letting us know where you are and maybe giving us something of the the feel of the place. 
Mm, sure, absolutely. Uh, I am Swedish uh, and I live in Sweden. That's uh, pretty common. <laughs> and I, I live in a small town. I, I grew up in Stockholm, which is the capital. Uh, but almost two years ago, uh, me and my wife uh, moved away to a small town. Uh, so it's not it's rural, but it's not like um, in the countryside. It's just a, a tiny, tiny town. And uh, we live in an old house that's for already the first floor is from 1728. So it's actually older than uh, the United States. And um, it's a great place. I mean, we both work from home. I'm an author and I write books. And my wife is um, a psychoanalyst. So she sees some patients uh, online and she also writes books. So for us, it's perfect to sort of move away from the hustle and bustle of, of um fairly big city of Stockholm. It's probably the wisest decision I've ever made. Yeah, I, I can relate. My wife and I did something similar. We've lived in rural places before, but uh, around 2017, we moved uh, to Montreal because we felt like we needed to be in a big city and we felt the need for expansion and things like that. And that we got that definitely from the city, but after about two years, we realized that uh, at this stage in our life, we much preferred kind of living in nature uh, in a small town, yeah. access to a larger city if we need it, but day to day, we definitely enjoy being immersed in nature. So yeah, same here. Yeah. Uh, what's your wife's name? Just so the listeners know. Uh, Vanessa, Vanessa Sinclair. Right. And you do a lot of work with her now, right? Absolutely. Uh, on, on many levels and artistic work. And we also sort of uh, read each other's stuff and, and, and work in a, a you know, day-to-day -day creative uh, collaboration. Mm. Isn't that so great to have found a partner that you can collaborate with creatively and share ideas? And I mean, with me and my wife, she's off doing her own exploration of uh various topics, mostly astrology related. Meanwhile, I'm into the the shamanic, the yogic, and the depth psychology, and we can come together uh, on these different levels, which is just so enjoyable and helpful as a, a practitioner too. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, for both me and I, my wife, we've uh, always been interested in in um, sort of this thing uh, that William Burroughs and Brian Geisen came up with. I mean, of course, other people had touched upon it before, but they distinctly formulated this thing of the third mind. You know, when something else emerges, when two minds meet and talk and and create together. And and for us, it's um, uh, absolutely central to to everything that we do uh, together. That is, and and. Um, we do most of the things together. So it's very interesting to, to um, uh, be in inside the mythology that we both sort of grew up with and, and developed in, uh, matured in as individuals. And now that we're actually working with it and sort of some of the techniques that they recommended and uh, do it together, then it's, it's kind of mind boggling. And we've even developed our own little thing, which is, we call it the 23rd mind. Uh, because of the number 23 and that kind of part of the mythos, uh, the mythos that came from Baros and Geisin, and that also seeped into uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth, which was sort of the mag magical group where I got my uh, uh, 
first training basically in in magical ritual magical thinking magical um, developing a magical outlook and many important things so it's um there's always been that uh, reverence and respect for uh, human com communication, basically, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or, or, or groups. It's just uh, things emerge that would otherwise not emerge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about how you got into magic. I, I'm guessing that we, you mentioned uh, Burroughs and Temple of Psychic Youth that it was through maybe literature and, and music. Was that your kind of what drew you into learning about magic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, first of all, you have this, um, the standard teenage uh, phase uh, you go through and you look for sort of rebellious spirits and, and things that uh, can be provocative or sort of tilt you in a way, make you feel <clears throat> transgressive or, or just, you know, de develop in, in uh, small increments or quantum leaps, uh, whatever. You just feel that need. And then you seek out material, whether it's in books or movies or music, that... Um, it's like a pendulum in a way. It's usually never still in the middle. It swings in all directions uh, to create those emotions that you need to uh, be able to develop. Uh, and uh, that scene, the musical scene, when I was in that formative uh, age, sort of uh, early teens, was around 1980s. You had the punk had just sort of fizzled out into uh, commodity uh, and then the post-punk and the new wave and then the industrial music uh, came and was incredibly important and incredibly influential because a lot of that music and the, the scene, uh, particularly the industrial music scene, was sort of based in an intellectual culture that carried references to philosophy, to magic. Uh, and I became like a little detective, you know, followed the trail of these uh, traces that were uh, on record sleeves in interviews with people who were cool. So it was kind of a magical environment uh, in a budding way. And of course, I'd loved Throbin Gristle. I loved early, early psychic TV. And then, of course, you had the Temple of Psychic Youth there as. Um, a magical order that was sort of a, an anti-magical order. It was new in its structure, and it sort of synthesized a lot of interesting things that I had been looking at, like Crowley, Spare, LaVey, you know, that kind of um, the celebrities of magic at that time, uh, and um, found a resonance with. And then when I realized, whoa, this is real, and these people actually work with this, uh, then I became first like a Topi subscriber for information, and then got, gradually got involved uh, until I uh, created Topi Scan, which was like the Scandinavian branch or access point of, of the Temple of Psychic Youth. And then it just basically snowballed from there in the best possible way because it was a networking environment. And remember, no internet at that time. So it was just, you know, writing letters, subscribing to newsletters, uh, sending things out. It was just delightful. And, um, I uh, early on became or felt a resonance with uh, Crowley and his uh, Thelema, uh, philosophy of Thelema, and also felt a resonance with uh, LaVey and Satanism, and basically very uh, much the philosophy of will, you know, as it came from Nietzsche, as it came from Schopenhauer, uh, but packaged in these alluring um, 
and you know pretty cool uh, magical packages so i just you know oriented myself intuitively uh, through these environments and they became my uh, schooling in a way mm. yeah i'm a i'm a little younger than you so i was more uh, coming up at that age in the late 80s early 90s mm. so still pre-internet and uh I think when seeking out some of those same authors that that you did, like Burroughs, was uh, was a big one for me. Uh, there's something about finding them that was affirming to uh, something I felt myself to be, uh, like an affirmation of my weirdness or uh, my nonconformity um, that I needed to find outside of my family unit. Uh, and so they were very helpful in just letting me know that there were others out there who thought differently, uh, who were against the same things I was against, you know. And um, a, a part of that was uh, finding the whole kind of transgressive art and music movement that was really flourishing in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and it sounds like I never found my way to Temple of Psychic Youth back then, but uh, probably some some kind of parallel streams, uh, Lydia Lunch and and all those you know those films that we could uh, trade around on video cassette and yep um, yeah all of that stuff and it was just weird and dark and scary but in a way life affirming um, and so that's interesting that that was your kind of way into magic so it was already uh, transgressive to the the kind of uh, structural um, magic systems and and orders. Uh, but then you found your way into maybe some of the kind of more, uh, I don't know, the established traditions like around Crowley's yeah. the Lema. No, I mean, absolutely. Kind of new still, right? But yeah depends on the perspective but but absolutely they're they're more traditional in the sense that they do have uh, a set structure and you work through initiations to sort of you know uh, ascend the ladder uh, and i i did work with um uh, the OTO Crowley's one of Crowley's uh, groups for 30 years and and uh, also with the Golden Dawn group and you know I, I looked at it all as as uh, again like I said going to school you know uh, Temple of Psychic Youth was very hardcore very uh, it, it really formatted me because they um, cleansed the surface of a lot of fluff you know in terms of uh, arcane um, I don't know, obfuscations that are not really needed in, in this thing that I hold sacred. And that is the individuation process that dawned on me fairly later that, you know, a lot of people have different paths, of course, uh, but they also have different ways of uh, uh, clothing their path, the terminologies. And um, when you look at different um, paths, traditions, philosophies, schools, orders, teachings, uh, a lot of it is basically the same. It is for you as an individual to improve and preferably with under their umbrella. Um, but even that is not necessary. The main thing is that you move forward on a path that is distinctly yours. Um, so that dawned uh, on me uh, along the way and for me that that's really the what it's all about it's individuation you have to come to a point where you find that your life is absolutely meaningful and anything that disturbs that has to be removed because it's completely redundant um, and that also goes of course for the past teachings that have 
brought you there to that point you know to divest yourself and and um I think that I've done that, but of course, in a polite <laughs> and nice way and respectful uh, and, uh, you know, paying uh, homage where homage is due uh, and um, going through these. Um, yeah, I was saying, saying uh, that the Temple of Psychic Youth was very much a, a formative beginning for me, but it was also hardcore. And I did learn most of the stuff that I've actually been able to work with on a practical level. Whereas these other groups like, you know, uh, the Golden Dawn group and and um, uh, the OTO, they are, I looked at that as going to university in a way. It was like going to college and you have a very set curriculum and you get a degree and you get a funny hat, you know, uh, all of these things that correspond to to um, schooling in, in sort of in the rational world. Uh, and I've been involved in some other things, too. And of course, my friendship with uh, LaVey uh, brought me into that environment. And I, I still feel a great resonance uh, with that. And I, uh, I think you know that I wrote a book last year uh, called Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. And that in itself was based on a documentary film that I made in in 2019 um, and uh, again with Genesis Peorage from Temple Psychic Youth and Psychic TV was a dear friend for a long 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 time and um, we made a documentary film together in 2015 or 16 about Jen and then we made a book together about well it's not about it's basically summing up our conversations that we've had between 1986 and 2019 so it's like a long span there uh, and basically i think and i also made a documentary about kenneth anger the filmmaker uh, and telemite who also meant a lot uh, for me in in my formative years and also later so basically i think these past years have really summed up a lot of things i've sort of um uh, well, I think that's a good expression, you know, uh, paying respect, paying homage to, to these people and these groups in a way, um, but also in a way saying, this has been extremely interesting. Now I know how these things, how they function, and I'm on this path, and uh, all of these things have gelled inside me in a way. Uh, I carry them forward in a way. And that's how I look at this um you know, uh, point in time and space where I am right now, where I'm becoming much more of an uh, an author. That's basically what I do. I used to do a lot of different things, like, you know, a bit of film, a bit of music, uh, a bit of this and that. But now I just um, write, uh, write stuff, you know, mostly essays. That This new book, uh, Source Magic, is an anthology uh, of lectures, of essays, of... Um, uh, thoughts and ideas uh, and um, um, I can see that I'm sort of finding my own voice in a way I don't need to be writing about other people all the time even though I enjoy it but from a strictly magical point of view I feel that uh, I am at this point on my path where I can just freely write I don't have to look in the rearview mirror see what am I going to write about is there someone there in terms of mentorship uh, that I need to be able to be myself and the question is no yeah great I, I, I appreciate the analogy of going through uh, different systems or traditions as a, a kind of university um, that makes sense it, it uh, because the structure can be very helpful in navigating these really complex um, practices and traditions and philosophies. Uh, but at some point, 
you need to graduate and and go out on your own and, and write your thesis, like what you think this is all about. If not, you're like one of those people just kind of stuck in academia in like a goldfish bowl where you're just uh, recycling old ideas over and over. Yep. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And I, I think it sounds like having that first experience or initiation into magical practice through Temple of Psychic Youth and, and Genesis Peorge's uh, approach was maybe setting you up in a way that you could then enter into the more um, structured traditions without uh, becoming bound by them. Would you say that's uh, accurate? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's also interesting. Uh, my current book project, I mean, the Source Magic just came out, literally just came out. and uh, But I'm all wrapping up the next book. Um, uh, well, this, this coming month, basically, and I've been working on it for a few months. And that's more like a magical autobiography. And it's yet another summing up thing. And I, I believe it's going to be like, like the last one before I delve into something completely new. Uh, and it's very interesting because this is the first time in my life that I've actually been, you know, forced to go through my diaries. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's a lot, you know, I started writing a diary in 1987. Um, and quite diligently. So there's a lot of stuff. And of course, you realize how weak our memories are, because I find so much uh, that I've completely forgotten about. And it's it's priceless stuff in terms of, you know, even details of conversation and people I met. And, um, and so basically, uh, you can find uh, very human aspects of it. You know, uh, early on, specifically, I asked myself, what the hell is going on here? Why am I in these different environments, uh, like on a, a global level and sort of being welcomed here and there? But it's just basically human contacts in a way. Um, like the beginning, we could follow one trail. Uh, I was uh, interested in, in Topi. I was a young fanzine editor, and that was led to the first meeting with Jan in, in London in 1986. Basically, interviewing him about psychic tv more than topi but i got so interested in it that i became a more active member so then in that incredibly creative environment that that topi was really truly an occultural network uh, i got very inspired and you know started a band and all kinds of things and then my uh, band's first record uh, was a song called Sweet Jane, uh, not the Lou Reed song, but it was just like a tribute to the actress Jane Mansfield and her relationship with Anton LaVey and the Church yeah. of Satan. You know, incredibly fascinating stuff. And when that record came out, uh, Jen had just met LaVey in San Francisco on a tour and said, you know, LaVey would really appreciate this. You should send him a record. And I thought, hey, what the hell? I did. And then I got this wonderful letter uh, back from Lave, making me a member, you know, that was his shtick, you know, here, you're a member. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and um, so that was amazing. And then uh, about a year later, I went to San Francisco and, and uh, met him and, and Blanche, his uh, partner, and he was, struck up a beautiful friendship. That was through Jen. And then during the first visit to Lave, 
I was going down to Los Angeles and I tentatively set up a meeting with Kenneth Anger, do an interview with, with him. And LaVey said that I've just been on the phone with Ken Anger. All you have to do is just go straight from the airport to his house. Uh, you know, I've set it up. So that was through LaVey that I had that door opening. And then, you know, uh, in many different uh, environments and on many different occasions, I have been blessed by these kinds of things. And I think it's not... Uh, I don't know, a blessing. It's just like, you know, trusting your intuition to dare to be in an environment where you initially feel, maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I shouldn't knock on this door. Maybe I shouldn't make that phone call. But still, you do, mm -hmm. because you trust your intuition. And I think um, that creates a lot of uh, beautiful synchronicities and also what I call blessings in this sense, that things mm -hmm. are actually kind of easy when your mind is set and you allow yourself to do it. And and that's how my life has been. And and uh, it's wonderful. And I ascribe it very much to what I call magic and a magical approach. Mm. Yeah, well, it really resonates with me. Um, people will often comment uh, to me that they're kind of amazed at how I can meet these extraordinary people, well-regarded people, um, and have conversations with them. And like, they would be, you know, so timid to do that. And really what it comes down to me is, is exactly what you said. It's following my intuition, my curiosity, and having the guts to say, why the hell not? And, and just reaching out and finding out that actually a lot of people are quite open and receptive and um, want to share and meet younger people who have an interest in their work. Uh, so it, it actually is quite, I find it quite easy and it's so rewarding and, and um, to have that connection with uh, people who have um, have kind of laid the foundation for the things that I'm interested in and exploring is, uh, is, is wonderful and I couldn't imagine my life without it. Mm -hmm. No, I, I completely agree. Absolutely. And that I think is one of the benefits of uh, of the internet also is that it allows for a faster communication. Uh, I still love, you know, print. I still, you know, have a little publishing company and I love making books. And, uh, and back in, in the olden days, uh, it was all about creating newsletters and, and um, booklets and and uh, what have you and that was wonderful also but in terms of this rapid culture that we're living in that also requires like a rapid antidote in a way and it's not necessarily slowness it could be an equally rapid you know production of a podcast production of a documentary film with quite you know, inexpensive or even free software that allows us to do this and, you know, good bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it really opens up a lot of things um, that create good third minding and not only for, you know, you and I now when we talk, but also for people who listen to it, you know, mm -hmm. to be inspired by, by uh, hopefully certain portions and fractions and they could just take that on and weave it into their own life. Yeah. I just want to highlight that. Um, I love that expression, third minding, as uh, as a kind of event or process. And just to highlight that for people listening right now, as you're listening to this conversation, there is a third 
present. It's your interaction with what we're saying, the ideas that arise in your mind, the things that it's inspiring, or even if that's a kind of resistance or disagreement, that that excitement in you, um, it's happening to you listening right now as Carl and I are engaged in this in this particular space and time. And the beauty of these uh, audio and video podcasts is that they'll live on. And anytime someone listens to it, you know, 10 years down the road or, you know, 10 weeks down the road, whatever, it's going to be alive again in some way because they're present to it. And uh, it's kind of like opening up a book and feeling a resonance with an author who died 100, 200 years ago. It, it, it takes us out of uh, a limited uh, human lifespan and into the kind of eternal, which is, uh, I mean, th- that's magic in a way, right? Or at least magical mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Vanessa and I, we have this thing where we say uh, jokingly or punnily that what what is it that we do? Well, we 23rd mind our business. You know, and then we laugh a little bit uh, because um, uh, the 23rd mind or the third mind, for that matter, uh, is, uh, I don't know, it's just a key key concept. And when you start working with it, I mean, for instance, that that's really what should be going on at universities, too, or any kinds of schools. You know, there should be a dialogue. You know, there should be a communication, not just a one-way cramming of of facts and data. Um, and it's been a long time since I was in that environment, so I don't know what's going on. Uh, but I do believe... Um, it has a lot to do with cramming. You want to get your degree, so you do follow the curriculum and make sure you don't trigger anyone, and then everything should be fine. But we all know that the great substantial ideas um, are uh, improved when discussed in dialogue or trialogue or whatever, even in groups. Um, run them back and forth, you know, and see mm-hmm. what's really going on. It, it, I think it's very, very important. Yeah, I think uh, cramming is like the perfect metaphor. It's what people say, they're cramming for an exam and uh, they're stuffing themselves with information and holding it just long enough so that they can regurgitate it at the right moment. Yeah, yeah. They're probably done with it, like they haven't digested it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a great way to think of it. Uh, I think that's so important too. And and something about um, being able to exchange, talk about ideas in a way uh, where we're not concretizing them, where we're not um, revering the the writers or thinkers that we're talking about in such a way that we uh, become uh, subservient to the idea or the teacher, right? To have the mm-hmm. balls to stand up and say, you know what, maybe Carl Jung didn't have it all right, or, you know, Genesis Peorage or whoever mm-hmm. we're holding mm-hmm. up as a teacher, a guide um, to question their ideas and think maybe in some way they were limited or times have changed. And, you know, this may have been true then, but it's no longer holds true. I think that's really important. And I, I find that very lacking, unfortunately, in uh, in today's world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see a lot of deification of these dead teachers and mm. the ideas themselves become kind of dead and ossified. Mm. And it's like they're going over the bones of some of these these teachers and that, that kind of bores me and uh, yeah. frustrates me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think uh, 
One, one should be one of the good things about the magical environment uh, in my formative days, because it wasn't only Topi, it was also um, a chaos magic. Uh, Spare was like a hovering ghost in a good way. Uh, Austin Spare. Austin Spare, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and um, this thing where you just um, pick and choose, you know, make your own curriculum, be use any uh, unexpected thing in ritual, because it appeals to you for some reason, you know, you don't have to analyze everything or contextualize anything or make any justifications to anyone. Just, you know, re- truly, literally go with the flow. And I think that um, that affected me a great deal. Um, I did go to school, as I said, you know, and that, that requires a bit of, you know, respect and looking to the totality of the of the curriculum. Uh, however, you, I think you're perfectly right. The things... Uh, have a tendency to to go out of date, and that could be on a, on a big level historically, or it could also be just in your own life as you move on in your uh, on your trajectory and in your individuation process, which is never done; it's a continual process. Uh, and then you realize, just like you said, that you know this was useful back then, but it's not useful anymore. And I tend to look at it as. Um, uh, uh, a weaving process where you weave, I call it a quantum quilt that you sort of wrap yourself in. And sometimes you can um, do some add-ons or, or sew on a new thing or, or something else has withered away because it's worn. You know, it's, it's cool. It's still your uh, quilt, your cloak, whatever you want to call it, uh, but it's made up of different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very, very important. And, and, um, uh, again, it's a matter of honesty, also, because we are who we are, and we we the self deceit is, of course, the worst you know possible scenario. But if we realize that, well, I don't like this band anymore, so why am I listening to it? This is just like you know inertia in a way, or or authors or or movies, or but we are who we are. But then we are also what other people project on us. So that kind of social thing. Um, is part of it also. I'm expected to talk about magic, you know, but I like it. <laughs> I'm expected to to be part of a certain scene, uh, and I'm uh, happy to do that. But uh, everything has a limit, and if I feel uh, one day and I can't talk about this anymore, then I won't, because it's it's not nothing is really sacrosanct in that way. And I think that honesty is the most crucial and important thing that any person or magician uh, can. Uh, nurture mm-hmm. in a way it's just like because uh, otherwise uh, especially the self-deceit thing is is uh, potentially quite tricky and and maybe even dangerous because you are empowering yourself with certain things that you know will manipulate the outer world so that you get what you want but at the same time you know that you're not what you're after what you're getting what you're manipulating to you know to to achieve uh, it's not really what you're after uh, so in that sense, it's like, um, I don't know, it's like a chasing, what do you call it, the dragon's tail, chasing an illusion in a way. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a, a, the, the worst uh, waste of time and energy there could possibly be. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much there. I, you know, you got away with words. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, Carl, but... Uh, I've heard you know, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sometimes I want to like put on the brakes though, because uh, there's a lot coming up that I think is really interesting. Um, one thing that you said that I think is really important to highlight is the uh, importance of fault of honoring and following your own intuition in terms mm-hmm. of developing a spiritual outlook or or worldview mm-hmm. and and the practices too. That's something that uh, traditionalists really frown upon and denigrate, you know, uh, with terms like, oh, it's like um, the spiritual buffet and you just go and pick what suits your own kind of ego and things like that. Nothing too challenging, uh, but it, it's more complex than that. And I think following your intuition, what resonates with you? Like you said, it's resonating for a reason. There's yeah. something in your soul deep down that is resonating with this uh, this image, with this practice, with this aesthetic, whatever it is, you're drawn to it for an important reason. And part of that is using your discernment to, to know yourself well enough to know that it's resonating with a deep part of yourself and not some yeah. superficial part, right? Yeah, so exactly. Like in the um, so will being kind of front and center in magical thinking and practice. I think what you're saying here is that it's really important that we know what we truly want and desire. And and that requires a lot of self-reflection and self-awareness and self-understanding. Like there's a lot of work to get down to that, to be able to practice the discernment. Like, is this some just superficial uh, desire I have that won't give me true fulfillment? Or is this something that like my soul just craves and, and longs for that if I actually follow through or find my way to it or achieve it, it will give me that deep satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's complicated, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and it can be paradoxical. And there's no, you know, um, solution that works for for everyone. That's the really it. It is all about individuation, and and it will, you know, that will be different for for everyone. And I, I do think also that um, uh, speaking for myself, it's been useful for me to begin with that youthful zest of. Uh, you know, being manipulative in in a good sense, creatively manipulative. You know, uh, I want these things. You know, I want that project. I want sustenance for this or or uh, uh, practical things. Basically, uh, learning to be um, thinking creatively in how to solve problems. Basically, I want mm-hmm. to achieve that, so I make that happen. And by Crowley's definition, that you know, equals magic in a way. Uh, it can be pretty stripped and it has no like supernatural dimension necessarily. Um, however, it is by doing these things and empowering yourself that you realize both what you actually want, meaning getting to know yourself on this in, in this uh, individuation process, but it also... Um, it's also okay to make mistakes in that sense, to learn by negative results mm-hmm. or at least yeah. negative uh, valuation af- post-facto, after the fact. You yeah. did something because you wanted to achieve that, and then when you have it, uh, then you realize um, mm, it wasn't really worth the while. You know? But then at least you've learned that then. That also becomes a piece of the individuation puzzle. So it's never bad to be, uh, I think... Um, 
have that youthful zest, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, uh, he's lazy, so he conjures up these brushes in Fantasia, uh, and and uh, it just becomes wreaks havoc. But he will have learned after that mistake because the the his super ego or the big magician comes and tells him that that uh, this is not the way to do it. So uh, I think that's uh, very important to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you set out on the magical path to allow yourself to be all these things and to be pragmatic or to be relying on one system, if that's what you feel, again, resonance with, uh, and then um, gradually realize that nothing is forever. You know, you, you will morph and find new things in other systems, uh, inspire inspiration from other artists and magicians. Uh, that is something to, the sooner you understand that and learn that yourself, uh, the more fun you will have because you will be less restricted saying, mm-hmm. oh, I, I probably shouldn't you know, go in that direction. It's supposedly bad or there's something negative. Someone else has a negative projection, but it's completely redundantly pointless. Don't listen to other people unless they come with good advice. <laughs> you know? But if they try to be, I don't know. Um, well, they try to, to limit you in some yeah. way based on their own biases. Exactly. That's but no I, good. I think like, so how does someone do that? I think like maybe um, trying to maintain an attitude of uh, curiosity, fluidity, like openness. Yeah. Um, Honesty. Honesty is super important. Well, being honest with what you're even actually yeah. attracted to, you yeah. know, um, that's really important. Uh, you know, when you're talking about the, that it could be a helpful stage for someone to just go after the kind of material goodies, even to find out that, you know, eh, that's not actually what I really want, or that's not really satisfying something in me. I mean, I can totally relate. Through my uh, 20s and 30s, I was working in advertising as a graphic designer. And um, at a certain point, I realized that I was becoming very adept at a certain kind of magic that I could create. uh, You know, I didn't know it at the time, but later learned I was creating like sigils for for brands. Yeah. Would attract and hold people's attention and draw them in and tell a story, uh, Mm -hmm. things like that. And as I got more kind of disillusioned with that whole kind of corporate advertising world, like the more money I started to make, the higher I got up the ladder, the less satisfying to my soul it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I started to see myself as a kind of a magician in those last years. Like I could go in and I could kind of manipulate the situation because the, the kind of the hierarchies and the politics were so obvious to me that it was, it was kind of dumb. Uh, And I could kind of go in and and do what I needed to do to get by, to get what I needed from the situation and not totally lose myself in it. Um, But like you said, at a certain point, somebody put it to me this way once and I really like it. You know, I was climbing the ladder I got up to the top and then I realized it was against the wrong wall the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I needed to get to the top to realize that to go, yes. oh, wait, this isn't actually what I want. So then, yeah. you know, coming back yeah. down and kind of uh, starting over or, or uh, kind of reorienting yeah. in a different direction. But I had to go through it and I, I did gain um, some some skills and, uh, and uh, 
and things that have helped me since, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. No, I, say, I say now it's like using my powers for good mm-hmm. instead of for selling Nike shoes or Mitsubishi yeah. cars or whatever. We, right. Right. Doing. No, I think everything, I mean, um, everything is an experience. I mean, even, you know, negative traumatic things, they are also experiences. And, and we know that psychologically it's very bad to try to, you know, push them down to repress them. Um, you need to deal with it. You need to learn from each experience. And the same goes for, for the positive stuff. It's not something to just like, you know, shy away and say, yeah, it was great. You should re- really go through it and see why was it great? Why did I feel so elated or ecstatic? You know, it's just everything, you know, it's all pieces of, of the puzzle that is you. And, and I think that's uh, one of the most magical insights I've had, uh, and you know, many of the most beautiful things they they do sound like cliches because you've probably heard them so many times, like you know, in stories, in movies, in books you've read. Um, uh, but at the same time, even the most cliched stuff can actually have substance. And I'm thinking specifically of this thing where you know, uh, memento mori, you know, Latin for remember that you're mortal, that remember that you will die. You know, that's such a, you know, gothic thing, you know. But when you come to think of it, and also when you actually lose someone you love, and and uh, it's one thing to lose, you know, old people, parents, grandparents, people, old age, or so-called natural causes. But when you lose someone young, um like for instance in 2014 i lost my best friend he was only 54 so way too young but that made me uh, realize that whoa there's something to this memento mori thing and the eerie thing is that he uh, liked um, uh, numismatism he collected coins and and jewels and sort of medals and sometimes he designed stuff uh, little pendants or necklaces whatever uh, and he gave me one about a year before of an old medieval woodcut from some book which actually said memento mori so either he had some kind of you know precog uh, feeling that he would die he wasn't ill or anything um, uh, or it was just a strange eerie uh, situation. Anyway, so I got that, and and then I, you know, uh, used that as something to grieve through when he had died, uh, and I just realized, wow, all of these incredible religions, all of these incredible magical schools, philosophies of life, um, uh, nothing really beats this memento mori thing, because mm-hmm. even you know. Let's hope, you know, maybe something happens after we die. Maybe we go somewhere, reincarnate or what, wherever. Maybe we go somewhere or it's just curtains, you know, lights out. Uh, we don't know. We will find out, though. Uh, but if you use well, it as... We may not be there to find out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You it know, may be but... the question that ultimately is never answered. Yeah. Yeah. No, quite, li- quite likely, I'd say. But, even, you know, when we are still alive then I think that this notion of, whoa, we don't know when, we don't know where, it is finite uh, as far as we can understand, uh, so we better make it a a really cool time. And that's why I'm inspired by hearing stories like yours, uh, where you have had any everything that sort of people project on you that you should have, a good career, money, you know, success in that sense. But then you sort of leave that because you're not satisfied and you take yourself seriously to that extent that you can break away. 
And, and you do that because you want to lead a meaningful life. It's all about, you know, feeling that meaning. And that I think is also what, what, um, you know, uh, if we return to Jung for a brief moment, uh, when we talk about synchronicities, I usually say that synchronicities in life is like, uh, the, the greasing of the machinery or, uh, little gifts that we get when we're on the right path. Jung yeah. said that they were sort of random things that had meaning that have meaning. And I think that's pretty astute yeah. also. He, got, he summed them up by saying meaningful coincidence. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that uh, we get them when we are on the right track. We usually don't get them when we're like hyper depressed or, or too stressed with rational things that are not really our things. And uh, it's just, uh, it comes to us when we're on the right path. And I think that... Um, uh, these are things that we also have to take seriously and 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 orient ourselves uh, by, not as some kind of commands, but just sort of this feeling of, whoa, when I'm with these these people in this group of creatives, I feel much better. A lot of fun things are happening than when I'm with these dullards who who are completely rational and just repeat, regurgitate um, inert ideas, you know? So that's kind of a no-brainer, extreme examples, but you, you'd rather want to be with the people who are fun and creative. Yeah. And I think that goes for, for any kind of situation in your life, that, that you, you want to feel that elation. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> over time, I get more and more... Um, adverse to certain words that i just hear too much like the word meaning has become such a big heavy word and i think people largely equate meaning with something um something like profound something that uh is going to impact like culture some you know it's such a big word now but i think i liked what i heard following up on that where like for me what it's become about and what it was at the time actually leaving advertising was a leading a more interesting, fun, and creative life um, where I could follow the things that I was really interested in that gave me some joy that I, I found like intriguing. And, um, and yes, I could say that that's, that's what uh, makes meaning in a way, but I like to get more specific because meaningful can mean like, um, just having fun with friends and being inspired creatively with people. Uh, it doesn't have to be some kind of earnest, serious thing. You follow me with that? Oh, absolutely. And I think it, it, it's basically a terminal, terminological issue where I mean, you could call it, you know, uh, a core or a substance, uh, uh, something that really fills you up in a way mm -hmm. but but uh, what it is should of course be that kind of elation and you mentioned joy for instance uh, that again is just like proof that you're doing something right because if you sit in a corner and just cry in a depressed state of mind you're doing something wrong <laughs> you know it's just mm -hmm. it's kind of simple so but whether you know it's meaningful to for instance um, stare at the ocean if that fills you with elation and, and joy, then then you should do that. But you have to make also some kind of sustenance somehow. And then you you uh, get a job that's close to the beach where you look out at the ocean. And then working with that will inherently be meaningful because it's 
a part of the requirement of what's required for you to be in the position where you can feel that joy. So, so it's uh, kind of a, uh, I guess, meaning is uh, the the trajectory or the it's not a set thing. It's a trajectory uh, that's meaningful because it fulfills certain requirements uh, that you know that you need in order to experience what you want to experience most of all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to do in this uh, first talk with you is get into some of the terminology that um, drew me into wanting to learn more about your work. You know, sometimes I'll pick up something and um, I don't get a sense of resonance with the writer, but right off the bat with you, I recognize someone who is probably... I had some kinship with in, in different ways. Uh, and some of this was the terms. Um, I, I think it was probably James Hillman who said that uh, words are angels, that they're, they could be like messengers. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so if certain words jump out at me in a, in someone's writing, I, I tend to follow it up. So um, these are going to be kind of old hat to you, but maybe mm. new to some people listening. I think we talked about you know how you kind of define what magic is, but do you have like a nice little um, summary that you use? Because I'm sure you talk about it a lot, and people ask you, "What do you mean by magic?" <laughs> yeah, I actually have quite recently. That's something that I include in the in the coming book uh, a definition because it is it is a tricky one. You know, I used to ascribe to Crowley's definition. You know, magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. La da da, and he he sort of strips it to the bone and makes it unsexy you know i i I don't like it Uh, but but anyway and also it could be like wow it needs to be cosmic stardust you know that's the other end of the spectrum but i think that you know they're all valid in their own right but i came up with this thing is that magic is a mind frame that allows for all the definitions of magic to pass through meaning it's sort of the ultimate open-mindedness um Uh, because some people may have had one experience that they rightly could call, wow, this is magical. Whereas other people could have had many or perhaps even work thematically within a magical order with magical rituals, etc., etc. Or someone might have uh, an acid trip or a shamanic journey or an ayahuasca experience and and just come away mind-blown and have a hard time Uh, connecting with other people who have not shared something similar because it's hard to define uh, these extra extra experiences that we we could call them magical we could call them spiritual we could call them i don't know um, hyper aware uh, psychedelic you know there's so many words that that could uh, be uh, meaningful in trying to describe this kind of experience so i would say um, for safety's sake, it's, it's the mind frame in itself that allows all the definitions to exist within it. Um, and then, of course, it is ma- magic and magical. There are also words that are this kind of an um, inflation in them. You know, wow, that movie was so magical. Yeah, this, wow, check out this tea, it's magical. You know, you, people, you know, toss it around and it sort of almost lost its meaning. On the other hand, you could say that culturally, historically, it's been one of the most 
uh, again, meaning meaningful words and substantial words uh, in human culture um, because it it um, contains so much signal of mm-hmm. you know proto science, proto culture, proto religion in a way um, that then sort of develop in different directions and take on uh, forms that we can relate to today in an easy way. Mm. Yeah, and it's also you've been used in a pejorative way too, right? Like one of the things you can say in this culture to put someone down is you say, oh, Carl, he engages in magical thinking. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. Know, when I hear that, I go, yeah. well, good. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's also something that I, I don't think it's in, in, in the Source Magic book, but it's something that I've sort of defined also in the coming book. And that's this thing about, you know, uh, magical thinking. Actually, I think it is mentioned in the in the um, chapter on magical realism. Magical thinking is the absolute fundament of empiricism. And when I say that to people interested in natural sciences, they would go, "What? What the fuck are you talking about? Empiricism is like uh, handling the truth and the rational, etc." But when you look at it further down, the absolute fundament, everything in the natural sciences, everything that uses an empirical method begins with a speculation, with a speculative theory, saying that, you know, what if we take these potions and mix them together? What if we split this atom? What if, what if? And many of these things that are postulated today uh, in an empirical environment uh, would be deemed absolutely heretical uh, 50 years ago. Hundred years ago, they they would have been you know burned at the stake. <laughs> so it, it's it's uh, I don't know. So so I think that magical yeah, thinking it, is it, important. It all start it starts with imagination. Like yes. it has to. Like that speculation is an imaginal act or oh, yeah. a, a something from the imaginal busting through. Like yeah. you hear so many stories of uh, these objective scientists who had the solution to the problem come to them in a dream or during mm-hmm. an acid trip or during, yes. you know, a, a walk where they're in a reverie, just walking yep. through the woods and all of a sudden, you know, and it's always yep. couched that way all of a sudden. And that's how we <laughs> yeah. describe our dreams. Yeah. Like these, yeah. these incredible time shifts that happen in dreams. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been thinking of, uh, writing a book just called all of a sudden and because yeah. <laughs> it's it's like especially in the work that i do i do dream work with people and talk yeah. about psychedelic journeys and things mm-hmm. um and this this phrase is always like the kind of bridge between um prior reality and what came <laughs> yeah. next yeah you know these incredible shifts are bridged by this little phrase all of yeah. a sudden yeah, yeah. No, so it's like a it's like a, a bad cut in a movie. You know, it's just some something yeah. is missing in between. <laughs> yeah, I forget what you call those uh, those really hard cuts, the jarring cuts, jump um, cuts, jump cut. Yeah, yeah, jumping. That's what it's like. Yeah, because you're jumping from one thing to an unrelated, seemingly yeah. unrelated thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good, and I, that's something I wanted to talk to you about is um, uh, thinking of magic as as a mind set. And I like when you talk about um, the the literary genre of magic realism or a filmic genre uh, as not actually just a genre, but it's like an attitude uh, of openness to life in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, one of the reasons why I uh, 
uh, wrote about it uh, in in this book is that of course I like the material. You know, you usually talk about sort of Latin American uh, authors, Borges and and um, the German Jungian. Yeah, exactly. Many sort of classic authors. Uh, and and so, what is it? What what makes them magical realists? And usually, when you look at it. If there is some kind of formula or or general uh, insight, also goes for movies. It's usually that um, it's pretty. It's a pretty straight narrative. It's mm. pretty conventional. However, there is something in there that is not supposed to be there. It could yeah. be formal, or it could be uh, in terms of content. Um, it's just something that is jarring and disturbing. It's like an um, an itch on a, a beautiful face that you just have to scratch. Uh, somehow um and uh that it's it's a it creates a little jump it, uh, it it's a little um it's a disturbance uh, trans- in the field yeah disturbance a transcendence that could also be a transgression if it's something uh, violent uh, really not belonging there but anyway what happens when you read that or watch films like that it's like you go whoa what just happened and that sense of um excitement and awe and surprise uh, will make you aware of the form and if you're aware of the form you can yeah. also become aware of the content of the message and, and and become aware that you've been bound by the form and it takes oh, yeah. something from the like the irrational or the supernatural or whatever erupting into the consensus reality yeah. to help you realize like yeah, yeah, that I was kind of stuck in it. Like I totally bought into the yes, whole uh, exactly. conservative narrative or whatever. And then this yeah. thing comes along, this event happens, mm-hmm. and it's like pff, mm-hmm. can bust you out of yeah. it. Yeah, I, I love that. That that those kind of uh, works, books or films that do that, uh, are something that help to um, catalyze or cultivate a more magical mindset. Um, are you familiar with the work of uh, Daniel Noel? He wrote a book called The Soul of Shamanism. No, it, it rings a vague bell, but I have not read it, no. It's not very well known, but uh, uh, one of my mentors, Thomas Moore, the psychologist, turned me on to him because he was also thinking a, a lot about um, the relationship between shamanism and psychology and, right. and also um, literature. Uh, and so he coined the term the, the shaman novel. Mm-hmm. So he looked uh, a lot at the work of Carlos Castaneda, and he thought, forget about the legitimacy of his um, anthropology. Uh, it, it's irregardless. It's not important, actually. But when you read those books, what it can do is create a, a shift in your mental state, yes. and your, your view of the world. And, yeah. and he thought that was the important function of those books. And yeah. so he had to think about it in a different way. So he came up with this turn, uh, like a shamanic or, or shaman novel, mm-hmm. uh, something that catalyzes the shamanic perspective in the reader or viewer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm, uh, extremely interested in that. And also I think there are other, um, uh, kinds of literature, I guess you could call it, uh, some kind of surrealism light in a way but not like the fun you know uh, kooky surrealism but more like um, uh, usually kind of dark but when you read it again you're just filled with this sort of uh, eerie feeling and uh, again it's an awareness raiser of both that what you've been reading uh, formally but also thematically and it makes you more aware Uh, and I think that that um, uh, 
it's a skill to be able to write like that and to be able to make movies like that. And and it's easy also to go over the edge and mm-hmm. then it becomes almost like kitsch, right? Yeah, when, when, silly. When, yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. and I guess the, the most well-known example, for me anyway, uh, would be, you know, David Lynch. Because sometimes, you know, he's so spot on in maintaining this absolute terrifying sense of uh, awe and suspense and surrealism of a dark kind. Uh, and then it's it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And then sometimes it just goes over the top and it becomes something else. It becomes like a, a circus sideshow of of um i don't know weirdness yeah like weirdness trying to weird. be too weird or... yeah mm-hmm. exactly and, and i think that's um which can be fun f- <laughs> yeah it's not, oh, absolutely. But it's not transformative in the same way no no it becomes yeah. just uh something cool it's not something yeah. magical it's something cool <laughs> um so but yeah no it's, it's just in, incredibly interesting and i think also when i wrote that uh, chapter about magical realism the one thing uh, i was thinking about was form form of media and for instance this thing where we are is so quickly taught or programmed to accept one form the form itself has a meaning you know i'm thinking specifically of of um cell phone camera video footage you know mm-hmm. it inherently has um uh, truth stamped on it this is the truth yeah. because whether it's someone being beaten up by cops or it's a, a, a tyrant being stoned to death in some some middle eastern country or anything that has to do with this sort of rocky and not too perfect it, it's the truth and yeah. we accept it as such because it's uh, that's you know what well, we've become accustomed to. and also the same thing with uh, super slick great production values mm-hmm. uh set design great lighting beautiful actors then we know this is fiction you know <laughs> yeah. uh, so it. it's 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 so uh we are easy to program in terms of uh, style and and uh, form uh, however as you're coming from a background of of uh, commercial adverti- advertising then you know that a lot of these things are merely uh, uh, manipulators manipulating yeah. techniques uh, so i th- just hope that people become more aware of that um, yeah. be- because it is a morass because kids who grew up today with uh, not only the internet but they grew up with social media they're constantly evolving they're constantly attractive uh, and now with sort of ai and the, the chatbots and everything it's just like a fucking chaos you know yeah. what's what what's actually true yeah. in the sense created by one human individual giving it a personal form that's like almost gone yeah yeah Okay, well, another term, and um, there's a couple I want to ask you about, but maybe this makes sense to go from, you know, what is magic to uh, a term that you coined to describe the work that you've been doing, magical anthropology. Right. Um, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Absolutely. And I think it had to do with, with um, I uh, came into... Uh, sort of the magical world in the sense that I was young, uh, I was very curious and hungry, and I read a lot and started practicing um, sort of intuitively and then got more settled into my ways with the help of, of you know, some groups and some, some teachers and stuff. Uh, however, uh, there was a parallel strain, not only um, 
my own personal work and my own personal interest, it was that I realized uh, quickly how incredibly integrated uh, magic uh, has been and still is in human culture. Uh, historically and even to this day so then you have this thing you know it's it's looking at these things it's basically you know you could look at from a sociological perspective or a psychological perspective but it's basically anthropology you know because it's it's far far more um, inclusive than merely the term like religion or the study of religion so i came up with this thing uh, magical anthropology is simply uh, the study of um, the human uh, interest in in magic and sort of integration of magic in culture in history and also vice versa you know how it's just like been absolutely central to human development uh, and that should be, you know, touching upon something that I know you're interested in also, uh, the shamanic work. Uh, and I avoid using shamanism, like an ism, uh, uh, in this uh, particular um, uh, perspective. Because I think that if you look at it historically, and we know this from, you know, traces and archaeology and, and this thing, uh, the sham- shamanic um agent or the shaman of the little community or the family or the little tribe and later on uh, as the communities grew bigger and bigger you know there's always been someone there who goes beyond and gets uh let's call it alternative epistemology you know it gets facts that are conducive to survival of this little group of these individuals uh, and that that's just the way uh, it's always been and it still is like that however when human uh, cultures became too complex, too big, too voluminous, too numerous, uh, then you became more and more by proxy. You had priests and your religions, and it was no longer pure gnostic epistemology, you know, not a one-on-one information that you could then share with your community. It was set information written down in tomes that usually uh, packed a, a moralistic punch rather than an encouragement to go gnostic yourself. Uh, so in that sense, but it's still the same same source. And I, I in the book, I also talk about how everything uh, is connected to that. Again, the natural sciences uh, comes from that, the artistic practices, artistic attitudes. Everything comes from this thing of going beyond your rational mind frame and seeing what's there. Or if you want to go, uh, you know, psychological, to go deeper inside yourself uh, or spiritual and see, you know, what do you find there? What you find there is relevant. Uh, it has been relevant for human beings and human cultures all along. So, it's not only a sociological fact, meaning certain people do this, certain people do that, certain tribes do that. It's something that we have inherently in us in uh, genetic memory. Uh, therefore, we have the need to transcend, you know, to get drunk, to get high, to, to you know, to lose ourselves in a way of, of leaving the rational for a bit. And then we have... Yeah, exactly. And then we have the professionals who can actually travel. Uh, and I usually say that it's easier to travel than, than people care to think because they're afraid that they will be bitter when they realize how easy it actually is. So they mm-hmm. leave it to, to entertainment and you know streaming and have this passive influx of similar kinds of, of uh, experiences 
but it's not theirs it's something that's yeah. imposed on them and and to to you know to make uh, <laughs> make it even worse something that they usually pay for also well yeah i was going to say not always imposed but um sometimes something that people uh kind of put themselves into as a way of feeling safe and protected yeah. by the the structure of the dogma um and that was really <laughs> brought home to me it's kind of laughing as you're talking because um you know the kind of the fear of the mystical experience yeah there was there's a writer that i follow on uh, substack and he was uh he was formerly like a pagan anarcho environmentalist um kind of an interesting guy and then he converted to catholicism mm -hmm. which i think personally was a bad move but um one of the things he's writing about is uh this kind of longing for a a rewilding of christianity and, and i think that's an interesting idea if christianity is not going anywhere it does need to evolve uh yeah. in some way and going a little more wild and getting out of the the big organizational structures and all that i think is probably a, a better move for yeah christians uh but so i made a comment on it and i said well if, have you heard of this um christian oriented religion that came out of the jungles of brazil that uses ayahuasca as a sacrament um, mm. i've participated in in their ceremonies and it is it's very wild and seems to me like something like what an early christianity would have been more like you know something mm. that comes out of both the greek mystery religions and the middle eastern <laughs> desert religion and all that and somebody responded by saying well this sounds heretical if they're using ayahuasca as a sacrament it's mm. heretical and it's probably dangerous and i think you should read uh the writing of this person and i i hope that it helps you like it was just to me like such a great example of the the way that christianity can uh, domesticate people like it's yeah. the antithesis of a wild yeah. christianity to be so fearful of mm. the mystical experience and the gnosis yeah um it's just ridiculous and it i just i feel bad for people who are so stuck in that in yeah the the illusion that it keeps them safe actually when it's just keeping them really limited um, yeah yeah totally but anyway, just to share that little anecdote of uh, mm -hmm. how this actually <laughs> shows up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I think that that uh, it's just uh, seems to be the way uh, of the world and the way of of when human culture becomes too big. Simply, then you you for some reason cannot maintain this gnostic approach where each and everyone finds their own you know, pipeline to, to knowledge and inspiration and all these things that we need. Uh, but it has to be proxyized. And I, I think it's, it's kind of sad because um, if there's something that human beings show, especially human beings in a group dynamic, is that someone will always see an opportunity to make a buck, you know, to, to take the power and cling to the power. And then to do that, you need to control the other people. And you, you toss them something that makes them feel safe. Whereas, in fact, the message that could have come from inside themselves might have been diametrical to the one that's being tossed to them. Heretical. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or just life affirming and, and smart and fun. Yeah, but, heretical but, and life affirming. Wow. Yes. Those, can we be talking <laughs> about the same thing here? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so so it, it's kind of sad. But anyway, I, I find um, 
the umbrella of magical anthropology is very useful for me because yeah. I could basically look at anything like I'm doing in yeah. the book, you know, uh, talking about some popular TV series that was weird, or it could be some high, high brow speculation about this or philosophy or just anything fits under that umbrella because the connection between um, uh, human culture and uh, and magic um, simply uh, is so deeply intertwined it's absolutely part of our genetic core yeah wasn't it i remember um i think it was alan moore uh i heard him do a rant once that was really great where he was basically summing up uh (laughs) the evolution of human culture and he he talked about the magician as embodying the um the scientist the philosopher the artist the therapist yes. all of those uh were all a part of magic and then everything started to get splintered out and specialization yeah. occurred yes and, yeah so is that kind of uh where the magical part of anthropology is for you is that um it's it's seeing the magic in the psychology and the sociology and the arts oh, yeah. and culture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's like um, uh, it's in there, and and specifically um, magic again is a complex word. But if we stick with the uh, shamanic approach or the gnostic approach, the meaning that all knowledge comes from somewhere, you know, uh, and you could. You know, if you're religiously inclined, you can say that it comes from out there, from the angels, whatever. Uh, Or if you're psychologically inclined, it all comes from deeper layers of our own psyche or from our inner selves. You know, the definitions are many. But the main thing is that all knowledge comes from somewhere. And I'm not talking about already existing knowledge, book knowledge that you could academically regurgitate forever, like we talked about before. Uh, But actual knowledge that is new and fresh and takes on new... um, challenges in for instance in solving a problem whether it's the natural sciences or an artist creating uh, a new kind of art you know mm-hmm. uh, the impetus or the spark always comes from somewhere uh, and that in itself uh, for me is um, uh, shamanic you know it's, it's agnostic uh, and it's definitely magical because one definition could also be that magic is uh, transforming uh, force or force field, you know, where something is changed from something to something new or improved or or less improved. I don't know. Is this it? It mm-hmm. inherently carries a change mm-hmm. uh, in it. Yeah. So that's that's uh, yeah, yeah. I, what you're talking about um, is raising uh, for me, like what I think is really the core problem of like an organized religion and its dogmas um, is that they're stuck in the past is one way to put it. And um, part of the reason why, you know, churches are becoming more and more empty is that the, the religion is no longer relevant to people's lives. And one thing about the kind of the magical or shamanic uh, attitude or the practice that actually enables you to go down or go out and retrieve some knowledge is that mm-hmm. it's going to be relevant to you in this place and time. And so that knowledge, while it may be perennial, universal, timeless, whatever, 
is always going to come through in a way that's relevant to our specific circumstance. Yeah. And that to me is the most important thing. And that's why I'm such a proponent of shamanic practice, Mm -hmm. uh, working with imagination and dreams. Cause to me, those are all shamanic practices anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, creativity, like true creativity, uh, allowing something to come through spontaneously, uh, that surprises you, I think is a good Mm -hmm. indicator of when it's like real and not from, you know, your, your small self or ego. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I'm really happy to to hear this. And this is like affirmation for me that uh, there is a kinship here and that we're kind of on the same mission. Oh, yeah, I, I would say so. Absolutely. And it's a good mission uh, because... Uh, <laughs> I think it, so, too. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a, a mission where we are simply uh, enjoying our own lives and setting good examples for other people to not think like us, but to allow themselves to think in new ways at least and try new things i think that's Mm -hmm. the key and then when you look at it with that um, uh, kind of uh, you know tolerant and open-minded approach uh, then you find that whoa many of these things have been talked about before many of these processes have been gone through before in in a way Perennial is a, it's a tricky kind of word, but it's been, you know, going on for a long, long, long time. And it has to do with this open-minded attitude. It has to do with trusting intuition. It has to do with all these things. And then the further back you get, the fewer phenomena there are. And, and the oldest one there is, is the shamanic experience. We could even say that the, the sort of so-called technically agnostic experience is much later. You know, it's the shamanic one is the core one. That's actually the title of the book source magic it's working with that uh, source it's the shamanic source and then what is it well it's first of all realization of sort of the holistic approach we're all connected within greater nature and then of course that said then you can affect different parts of nature or get to know different parts of that nature through yourself and get information from that greater nature through basically simply transcending your rational thinking mm-hmm. and getting going out of in, your head. Yeah, 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 getting out of your head and getting into, as you say, imagination and these kind of you know inner journeys that sound so complex, but they're really so simple. The problem is that many people probably have experienced them in sort of, you know, hypnagogic states or even meditations or just being tired or spacing out, whatever. But someone dreams it's a psychedelic yeah, experience, of course. you know? But they don't <laughs> validate don't discount it. discount it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they say, oh, it's just a dream, has no meaning. But in actual fact, it has super meaning if you allow it to have super meaning. Yeah, well, this comes back to what you're talking about in um, in experiencing the world, seeing the world, seeing your own life with this uh, magical or shamanic um, uh, mindset or or viewpoint. Yeah. What that does to me is infuses things with meaning. Um, It enriches life. It makes it way more interesting. Yeah. And kind of magical in the colloquial sense. Uh, Like it puts a little sparkle on even the most mundane things. Mm. Um, Yeah. And that to me, that to me is ultimately the goal is to live an interesting life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, no, I, I could live a boring life. God, <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't right? agree more. And I, I think also 
one one of my sort of uh, premises or, or thesis in in uh, this strange world that we're living in and the strange time that we're living in is that the reason why there is so much you know uh, uh, blatant, visible magic around in culture, why we have this thing called occulture and processes of occulturation, where many of the occult things go into the mainstream. It's simply, again, a matter of us collectively trying to survive. It's part of our survival instinct to look for new ways, new ways of looking at the problems that we have, because the rational mind frame and the conservative approaches, they simply uh, are a death drive. Uh, they won't work. We won't uh, last if we carry on in that thing. So we could look at indigenous cultures, or we could look at you know psychedelic prophets, or Gnosticism, or uh, all of these sort of hocus pocus things. Uh, or underground are, artists. Yeah, that too. Right? They are valuable as um, uh, truth sayers, soothsayers, uh, in sources of inspiration for us or to even think. Her- heretics to yeah, help, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, cause someone to question something like to yeah, snap the very through their extreme art or their extreme action. Like that's one of the things I think Genesis was so uh, inclined toward, but talented at was just by, by the way they showed up in a room, I think they started to snap people out of oh, their yeah. kind of consensus reality. And exactly. The question, yeah, all yeah. their preconceptions about what a man is, what a woman is, um, all of it. And that to me, like life as a kind of magical or shamanic um, act or, or force yeah. is, uh, is inspiring. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And that's uh, one kind of magician who uh, has, you know, visible presence uh, and is, uh, you know, Jen early on called himself a uh, cultural engineer. And that's absolutely true. Look at all the things that Jen did. Uh, but then, of course, there are a lot of magicians who work completely in in, uh, in the dark, like truly occult and prefer it that way. Like, you know, um, uh, a Zen uh, Sen priest or some kind of bodhisattva, they don't necessarily need uh, a TikTok account to show yeah, or all the like cool a, things. a real a real shaman in the jungle or yeah, the exactly steps of Mongolia. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> they're out there doing something. Yeah, um, that you know you may not have any idea about, and it's probably for the best that you don't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, and I think that that makes that's what makes it fascinating too, because it is an actual reality. There are a lot of what I mean by that is that there are actually a lot of unknown, un- invisible people working with these things, and that to me gives it credence and and uh, value. Because if it were up to the the what do you call it, sort of the media savvy, the media hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, quasi-magicians, pseudo-magicians looking for attention, looking to to sort of, uh, you know, promote a lecture series, whatever, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they are a dime a dozen. And I don't know, they might have some substance, but I don't think they have the power to change anything. Change needs to come on the level of, through the level of inspiration for real, you know, so-called mundane normal people so that it becomes like a critical mass where people uh, go no this is where we draw the line we can't go on like this anymore because if we do we will all perish and that i don't think is a a good scenario Mm. yeah um touching on that uh 
brings up something else that I was curious about asking about, like the role of uh, social media now and what kind of people get the most attention. I've been thinking recently, you know, having gotten to know quite a few people who are well-known public figures, um, one thing that seems to be like common is that how to put this the person that we read as charismatic on uh social media or youtube or television that charisma often comes from a kind of uh manic quality about them like the the manic depressive i think makes a really good celebrity because when they're on they're filled up with something that is really attractive to other people, like a really the way a really bright light attracts moths to it. Mm-hmm. There's just something about them when they're in that state, that high state uh, that is really attractive and translates really well through this this media medium, thing. Yeah, this particular medium, especially um, people can come on and give really fast uh, commentaries on something where they're really ex- like a like a Jordan Peterson type, where you can tell mm-hmm. he's just like completely inflated in the moment and it's coming through and people are drawn to it. Um, that to me does not always make a great practitioner or teacher. Uh, it, it may, it makes a great um, spokesperson or yeah. somebody to draw attention to something, but they may not be the person that actually is going to be a good teacher or mentor to you. If you want to be a, a kind of a healthy person who's able to maintain healthy relationships and lifestyle and all of that, right? Like they tend to burn really bright, but their personal lives are often a real mess. Yeah. 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 I think also this, this, uh, uh, because it's such a strong culture, it mean, meaning celebrity and being known and visible is, has become such an important part of, of you know, marketing yourself, marketing uh, what you do, etc., etc. That I do believe that when you reach a certain level of success, um, the visibility in itself and, you know, the expectations, mm-hmm. um, projections, it becomes a- addictive. You know, you, you become enamored by this sort of I- image of illusion of yourself um, that takes away a lot from the actual substance that might have been there from the start. And that, I guess, is a yeah. dilemma that that um, those people will have to face. And I think mm-hmm. it's a kind of a losing battle uh, because it, it will be so attractive and alluring to stay in the limelight and could also be, you know, have pecuniary value to be visible. You know, you sell more units or whatever it is. Yeah. And and that I, I came to think about that just the other day. It's like, the, you know, there's one power that is higher than having power. And that's the power to renounce power. Meaning that if you come to the pinnacle of something and then you just say, fuck it. You know, this is not for me. That that's a power that is greater than the power of getting to the top, in a way. Well, yeah, because you've transcended that ultimate, yeah. um, well, power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, and another part of that, uh, the the becoming a, a celebrity, um, is the kind of demand that it requires on someone. Like the way that this social media culture works is the more popular you are, the more you have to be out there, the more you have to produce in order to maintain that level Mm -hmm. because people forget so quickly and you're so quickly replaced by the next 
uh, bright light that comes on yeah. the scene. And so the, de- the demand that that takes, like you said, it's ultimately um, there's going to be diminishing returns in terms yeah. of sustaining your own life force. So you're going to burn out at some point. And um, the sooner you can realize that and maybe choose uh, health over money or yeah. popularity yeah. or you know, validation, whatever it is you're getting from it, uh, the better off you'll be. So you talked earlier about the kind of expectations and projections people have. So someone, okay, Carl Abrahamson is writing about magic and all these transgressive people. When you show up on screen, you look like a pretty normal, uh, conventional guy who I probably wouldn't look twice at if I passed you on the streets of Stockholm. I'd mm-hmm. go, oh, there's like a a local businessman. He looks maybe a little creative. Uh, <laughs> he's dressed casually. Maybe he works in advertising or something, yeah, right? Yeah. So I'm sure it would help attract more attention to you and your work if you came out um, full of tattoos and wearing like little horns or having piercings or something like that. I don't know. Maybe you have a whole bodysuit of tattoos underneath the I sweater do. vest, but <laughs> but you're not showing it off, right? No, no, no. And that that's that's uh, something that Is that I was a decision write. that you did um, yeah. consciously? Yeah. No, 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 I wouldn't say a decision because that sounds a little bit like arbitrary. You know, I make a decision to, to, to not be this, to, to be that. It's just who I am. And I think that in many of the environments where I have been and been formatted and been been sort of taught in a way or educated myself, uh, I have been truly the odd one. You know, I have truly been because the, you're the, so uh, normal. The rebel, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. I like to be dressed, you know, what I call in a correct way. I'm f- fairly unassuming as a, a person, also, and that I think that reflects in the outer. Uh, and I'm very happy about that. I I, uh, I think that. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, emotional or psychic disposition. Some people crave attention. Uh, I'm only interested in that aspect when it comes to my work, you know. And then I don't need to have that sort of uh, showman's uh, suit. Uh, I'm happy to just be me. Uh, I get very enthusiastic when I talk about my work. Uh, but... Um, when I'm not in a situation like this, for instance, I'm just very happy to to just carry on working. I don't feel that need of attention uh, from uh, uh, or acknowledgement from from the outside world. Uh, I'm happy if it's only on a fairly abstract level that you know you can meet some people in a bookstore or uh, lectures. I like lecturing in that sense. But then I think. Um, I make a better picture by being this sort of, as you say, like normal uh, pseudo-academic guy who uh, just uh, is um, passionate about a certain thing. But it doesn't come with the the baggage of uh, constantly needing acknowledgement, like for looks or for uh, persona. Uh, I couldn't care less. I'm just uh, I'm just an author. Basically, mm-hmm. I'm a magical anthropologist, and I'm happy to be one here in my office. <laughs> yeah. well, that's great. I, I really appreciate you um, showing up as yourself, Carl. Um, sometimes, you know, I contact uh, a writer or someone that you know I'm interested in, and uh, it's hard to have a conversation because it's they come with like um, an agenda or a script. Yeah. And I had a frustrating experience last week where it was like the person wasn't actually hearing my questions. It, 
anything that I said was just an excuse for them to deliver the thing uh, yeah. they were ready to deliver, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate that you don't come on as like a kind of authority or teacher, but as a, a longtime practitioner who has been curious about uh, magic and magical practices for a long time, and um, you're sharing your thoughts about it and some of your experiences. And I think that's wonderful. And I think that's a great kind of uh, attitude to have about all of this. Yeah. So yeah, thanks. No, I, I, thank you very much. It makes me happy to hear that. And I think uh, that's a result of, uh, again, a, a long process. Uh, but I could also have just at some point said, okay, well, now I've had enough of this and I'll just, you know, focus on some kind of career or write fiction or whatever, you know. But I did feel uh, at some point, I wouldn't say obliged, but I, I or, uh, you know, uh, duty bound or honor bound or anything like that. It sounds too dramatic, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but I did feel, um, um, a desire. I felt a desire to, wow, I've been through all of these amazing things. I met these amazing people. Now it's time for me to uh, formulate. And also it's a pretty good thing that I'm doing this because most of those people are actually dead now. You know, the people who were meaningful for, for me and sort of uh, that I can say that I learned things from. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's my turn to sort of rephrase whatever it is that has come to me and, and um, not only pay back, but also pay forward. Um, and I think that's, uh, that makes me work in a tradition of sorts. It's, for me, fairly undefined, but I would definitely see it as a Gnostic tradition um, because the um, it uh, encourages the individual to seek gnosis, to seek a direct uh, communication, a direct um, you know uh, link Trans to the source. Transmission. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. Anything like that. Uh, so many, many, many people have done that before me and probably better, but I, I don't feel I have a choice. Of course, I do have a choice, but I feel a desire to be this person that, that writes these books and gives these lectures. And I know for a fact that I'm inspiring a lot of people because they've, they come up and, and told me so. So, and that I think is more fuel for my fire than whatever, you know, uh, money, which is not much, <laughs> that's coming coming from from uh, writing about these things. Yeah, but probably like me, you feel rich in yeah many more important ways than oh, absolutely having the you know, yeah. extra cash to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would not have it in any any other way. I'm I'm uh, too far gone. Uh, I'm a lifer. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no going back. Like once you've broken out of conventionality, yeah. Um, once you've gotten out of the rat race, I, I tell you, there's no going back. No. Early on, when I really started to get serious about yoga practice, um, I heard someone say once, like, "Be careful because yoga can ruin your life," and. I realized that that was true, actually, because it woke me up to something deeper inside myself, which was like trying to guide me down a particular path that I wasn't going yeah. down and all that. Um, but the way I rephrased it myself was um, yoga can ruin your life, but every life needs a good ruining every now and again. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, this has been really great. And um, I'd love to have you on again sometime to talk about some specific figures that I know you've written about who I'm yeah. also very interested in, particularly mm-hmm. uh, for me. I'd love to talk to you about uh, Carl Jung and Rudolf Steiner. Right. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe we could talk about Burroughs too, but those two, I think are linked in some way that hasn't been talked about enough. And I find yeah. it so weird that Carl Jung never really talked about Steiner and Steiner never talked. It was like, there are two magicians in their own separate towers. Uh, yeah. In the same country, <laughs> in the same country who like knew about each other, yeah, but they were yeah. kind of trying to do their own thing. And I find yeah. that so intriguing. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. They're incredibly fascinating. But then th- that also goes to show the, uh, you know, the beginning of this phase that we're in, you know, you could call it the Aeon of Horus or Age of Aquarius, whatever. Uh, just something something happened there at the turn of the previous century where people started, all the movement was to look inside rather than, you know, uh, focus on, on the outer because of, you know, traumas that had happened, traumas that were about to happen in the zeitgeist with the wars and, and stuff like that. So you have this thing, interest in occultism, interest in psychology, interest in self-transformation. And it just, uh, they were the real pioneers, you know, Freud and Jung and Steiner also, and, you know, many others, even Crowley, um, they opened up the 20th century for us to move on to uh, and into the 21st. Um, And basically, again, uh, they're all saying the same thing. They just have different languages and tools and technologies for it. But it's something that we need to address uh, seriously, not just as some kooky uh, people, colorful characters of, of the 20th century, but as actual, you know, harbingers of useful information. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I'm not, have you mm-hmm. seen or read my piece where I compare uh, Steiner with Crowley? No, no. No, I think you'll find that interesting. It's in the book... Uh, Is it in a culture? That's in a culture, exactly. Uh, because uh, I found it so, again, that uh, this kind of Nietzschean dichotomy, you know, uh, where you have the Dionysian and the Apollonian. Uh, and uh, to compare them was very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll do that then uh, with Jung instead. Of I love that framing, too, of the Dionysian and the... Apollonic, uh, yeah. that that's really good. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Um, well, great. Hopefully, we can talk soon. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just pleasure, just Carl. let let me know. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, best of luck with the release of the new book, Source Magic. Um, I've been enjoying it so far, and uh, I love uh, compendiums, anthologies, um, short little essays that you can kind of dive into, and you can skip around, and it all it all yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. Just like a little bag of uh, candies. Yeah, great. I love yep. it. Okay, Carl, we'll see you down the road. Thank you very much. See you okay. in the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah bye. thanks, brother. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite app, share it with a friend, or leave us a review. If you're interested in joining the conversation, Head on over to the Medicine Path online community and school of soul studies at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields until we meet again on the Medicine Path.